Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined for this intro by Ellison Weist. Hello, Ellison. Hey there, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, good, good. So uh, we we finally have a uh, talk when it's not, uh, you know, oh, dark 30. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I can see you. Uh, uh, I think you're referring to me running into you and uh, Molly when I was with uh, my dog Babylon. I know that was so funny. So we were we were we were actually a little lost. We were kind of turned around. We, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and um, so we were on this street that didn't look very familiar. And even though we've been on it a ton of times, and so but then Molly goes, "Oh look, a porta potty." <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, I mean, she made a beeline for that. I'm like saying, "Oh, I recognize that voice." Hey, Sarah, and Molly's like very intent. <laughs> <laughs> a woman on a mission. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I know that feeling well. <laughs> so, but that was just so funny. I mean, like here we are, all turned around, and then it's like, oh, and there's Ellison. <laughs> yeah, 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 and you were lit up, man. If I, yeah, I, I could see you guys a mile off. Uh, I know, what were I you? Know, I know. I had my. Um, I go double duty with lights. I carry knuckle lights, and Molly carries them as well. Particularly now that we both have the new um, revamped rechargeable ones, so they sit really Ooh. firmly in their base, and you don't have to always be wondering, you know, oh, did I put in new batteries recently enough? So that's awesome. And then I was also wearing my Knox gear flashy blinky um it it's worn like a vest but there's not all that much fabric it's just a stretchy around the waist and then um flexible i guess that'd be rubber or plastic i don't know um light filled um uh little tiny like tubing over the shoulders mm-hmm. dropping down and um yeah that one gets quite a bit of notice so <laughs> oh yeah especially and and you know babylon is 14 months old and he was like oh wow what is this man <laughs> yeah. he was like, like he know, kept fainting every time it <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it didn't really help. I'm trying to get him to not jump on people. And I was like, oh, yeah, I give up. <laughs> like, Although, boy, you, you are a good dog trainer. You with the, the audio cues that you were giving him, I was very impressed. Well, yeah, you you can be impressed until you see, you know, he's, he's a work in progress, still. <laughs> but, but it is funny, every time he sees a Frenchie now, he's like, oh, yeah, I know these guys, you know, and immediately runs up to them. Oh, and Augie likes nothing better than a, a dog that's much bigger than he is, so yeah, yeah we'll have yeah. to get them together again. So, yeah, Augie's getting oh, yeah. better at um, uh, dog parks that don't have fences, so. Uh, oh, good, good. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so good deal. So, but I did not get a chance. We were, we didn't speak for very long, so I did not get to hear the tale of your turkey trot, which was now probably close to about a month ago, but I think it, it a couple you, of weeks. you need to humble brag a little bit about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it it's going to be very humble brag when you hear the circumstances. Of course, last year, uh, I guess I should back up. We always go to South Carolina, uh, to Aiken, South Carolina to visit my uh, daughter and her family. And uh, last year, we started this tradition of running uh, the local turkey trot Thanksgiving morning, 5k. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, I managed because I had just turned 60 to win my age group, you know. (laughs) And uh, so Carol was giving me a hard time. She said, Mom, you know, you've got to uh, you got to maintain, you, you know, you've got to, you've got to hold it, you know, hold on to your, Defend your, your championship, yeah. defend my title. Yeah. And I was like, honey, I haven't run in like six months. And she's like, not at all. I'm like, except for, you know, chasing Babylon, you know, every once in a while I'm doing sprints with him, but it's very like, and she was like, well, you know, please, please just go ahead. 
and I couldn't believe it, but I uh, won it again and uh, was only, I think, I like about 15 seconds slower than last year. But the kind of funny thing is um, this year there were a whopping four of us in the 60 and over. No. As in, that's it. It's a small race. So it's like, you know, so Carl, you know, my husband, always looking to the bright side. He goes, yep, you're marching towards death. <laughs> so this, is, this is the way they're 60 and never again. <laughs> 60 to grave. Like, yeah, yeah. I was like, thank you. Thanks, honey. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is that is wrong that they don't divide it up. At least I mean, nope. I don't know, seventy no. plus. You know, we. Can That's what I was kind of that. hoping for, but then when I saw that there were, you know, like I say, four of us in the in the sixty plus category, I was like, okay, all right. Okay, okay but I'll do the bragging for for you because you you told me about an email that you were ten minutes ahead of your closest competitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. So that yeah. was. Uh, you know, but uh, here again, you know, if it was me and 40 people, but, <laughs> but but anyway, it was it was fun. And my granddaughter, who just turned six, insisted that we stay so that I could get my swag. Oh, nice. um, she was very so I held her in a hand, let her go up with me, you oh. know, uh, in front of the probably remaining 17 people that were still there at that time. <laughs> <laughs> that waited it out. <laughs> But oh. it was fun, and it and she ran the fun run for the first time, as did her her oh. younger brother, who's three and a half. And so, and I said, you know, you want to do it again next year? And she goes, I want to do it for the rest of my life. Oh, we love lifelong <laughs> runners. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, well, so as you, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you won the bagger title. You won the badass grandma runner title yeah right yeah, right yeah. yeah well I'm sure that there are others that uh, are out there that are probably in the 60 to 64 but you know this is a small race anyway it was fun it was uh, fun oh yeah. awesome. awesome awesome so and what are you reading these days well I am reading something that uh, I almost feel embarrassed to say I'm finally getting around to it because it's it was um, shortlisted for the National Book Award um, I think Two years ago, it's Pachinko. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. P-A-C-H-I-N-K-O. And the author is Min Yin Lee. Uh, her first book was Free Food for Millionaires, which I enjoyed. But this book is awesome. It's about uh, four generations of, uh, in Korea and outside of Korea and Japan. And um, just riveting. Um, started it, you know, about a night, uh, I guess, on the way home maybe a night before we left and uh, have been sort of taking it in bits and pieces because it's fabulous. The story's great and the writing's good too. Oh, would be a great. What time period, sorry, what time period does it cover? It starts off in the early 1900s and I have progressed up into the early 1960s now. So um, about in the third generation right now. So it's, you know, it's one of these epic sagas that I really love if they're done well. I yes, think, um, certainly. you know, that's that's the key. What about you? Well, so, um, well, let me ask your opinion about one book that I got out of the library. I got two out of the library, and this one I found on, you know, it was a recommended book. And it's a, the, I think it's the new Sarah Waters book. It's called Fingersmith. And, oh, it's not new. Oh, it's not? Oh, okay. So, no, but No, no, was, Fingersmith is... Oh, all right. Okay. So, yeah, that's a, that's because, one of her earlier ones. Or, because yeah. we, I, 
remind me the name of the book that I, it was about the, the renters or the. Oh the, gosh. Yeah. Um, um, the paying guests. That's what it is. The, the paying, paying guests. Yeah. I was going to say the little guests and that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. The paying guest. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that we so enjoyed that book by Sarah Waters. So um, have you read Fingersmith or no? I have read Fingersmith, but it's been, I will admit, it's been a long time since I read it. And I think I was okay with it. I find her stuff I either enjoy or I get a little, I, I think she gets a little sidetracked at times. And I can't, uh, to be honest with you, I cannot remember exactly what my feelings about Fingersmith were. Okay. Um, okay. Well, so... so- so the but the book I wanted to tell you about most is because um, it kind of I don't know just spun me in a it's part of my whole little side obsession that I have it's called um, and that that sounds bad now that I'll tell you the title of it it's called the Golden Age of Murder and the subtitle oh. is the mystery of the writers who invented the modern detective story. Oh, I've heard something about that. Yeah. yeah so are you into it? Yes. Yeah, so I, so, and it's by a gentleman named Edward, uh, Martin Edwards, sorry. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the way I found out about it is I just love this charming, kind of infrequent podcast called She Done It. And that's one word, she, like who done it, but with she and mm-hmm. who. And so um, that, that, you know, the golden age of murder, the golden age of um, detective writing was the time period largely between w- the end of World War I and the start of World War II. And, you know, the Agatha Christie, the Dorothy L. Sayers, that whole crowd. Mm-hmm. And just why it was that these writers really rose in popularity, why people were so obsessed with um, kind of sensationalized murders and that, you know, there was such, um, you know, there'd been such hardship and sadness and a lot of death during World War One and the um, influenza epidemic that killed even more people than, than World War One did. And so then, and then also all the things that were coming, the, you know, there was such um, trepidation in the air with the coming of World War Two and the, you know, tumultuous world situation. And so people wanted distractions and they just wanted mm-hmm. something to take them out of it, whether that was a sensationalized true crime or these, you know, fictionalized things, which borrowed a lot from, um, I guess, rip from the headlines type things, you know, the um, law and order of the, of the pages. Yeah. <laughs> um, so boy, I got that out of the library and I read almost a hundred pages that afternoon that I, it was a Sunday. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my goodness. Okay. And, that's saying something. Yeah. And um, um, because uh, growing up, my sister, like, as far as I'm concerned, read all the Agatha Christie novels there are, all Dorothy mm-hmm. L. Sayers. And it's funny mm-hmm. how that, I don't know if this happened with you and your brothers, but with me, with my siblings, either if they were into something, it totally made me dig it, or I turned completely away from it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, with her, like, my sister loved the Beatles. I'm sorry, no disrespect, but I can't stand the Beatles. <laughs> And, oh no! But but um, true like the the sorry the Agatha Christie Dorothy L Sayers I've read a bunch of them but they I'm just fascinated by them and that she done it podcast really just drew me in and and um, I don't know the Golden Age of Murder is really well written so oh good well I'm gonna I had heard about that in fact I think I read a review in the Times in the New York Times about it so I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear you know sometimes you read reviews and you're like eh, should I yeah not you know not certain so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good. Good. Yes. Good. It's, it's, it's very engaging and just, um, you know, it's an interesting time in history aside from yes. the authors that were working then. So, 
Um, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That that area that time period always fascinates me. Yeah. Um, and I think good fiction or good nonfiction written about that time period is is just worth its weight in gold. I do find um, because um, I find almost any nonfiction that describes really gives a really clear picture of a, a certain time period. I find those so invaluable because mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, that, so for this, it's, you know, murders and, and, you know, mur- detective writers that's pulling me in and inter- you know, letting me look around that era, but it's the same sort of way that, you know, if you can get a hook that gets you into the 1960s or, you know, the mm-hmm. civil war era or whatever it is, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Look, Ham- Hamilton. I mean, why are we all so intrigued by right. you know, you know, the late 1700s and the early 1800s? I mean, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I just I, I really sometimes think that uh, nonfiction, more people not it need to really give nonfiction a good look. I have I have friends who read nothing. Well, my brothers, you were referring to them. My brothers and my father literally pretty much read nothing but nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have friends that are the exact opposite. And I think it's mainly because they just, I want to say, but you haven't read the right nonfiction. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're still talking about stuff that you had to read back in college and, yeah. you know, um, but there's, there's so a, much. And because there's also so many, I don't want to say genres, but kind of ways to dissect nonfiction so that you and I were talking about ones that look at a period in history, or you can do one that's a biography. So it, so that's your hook. It's, you know, about, Jane Austen or, you know, I don't know, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt. Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or so it, or it can be about, uh, you know, um, a problem that is, that um, is gripping the nation. I mean, like I'm thinking about the, what was the woman about the um, nickel and dimed? The yes. The yeah. Mysteries. Barbara Ehrlich. Yeah. Ehrlich. Ehrlich. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, looking at um, the problem with, um, you know, minimum wage em- employment, um, so that it can be, you know, looking at a time period or a conflict or a, you know, an issue. And so just kind of figuring out, I agree that, that there should be, that we should be reading more nonfiction because as you know, as much as fiction opens your mind to things, nonfiction opens your eyes to things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's true that if we don't learn from, you know, lessons in the past, we're doomed to repeat them. And um, Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you read, or, you know, I always think of the book, and I've talked about it before, Troublesome Troublesome Young Men by Mm -hmm. Lynn Olson, which is, is, takes place in England, uh, right on the cusp of World War II, and essentially refers to Churchill and some of his uh, young political friends who, you know, were very, very concerned about what was going on in Europe at that time. And somebody referred to them as troublesome young men, but Mm. it's just, you know, what's happening, you know, what's Mm. going to happen. But at the same time, you're on the edge of your seat. And I think I told you that my father, I gave it to him to read and he was staying with us and he came downstairs one morning and he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm halfway through that book and I think there's going to be a war. But I just, you know, he was the same way. He was just, and, you know, he lived through it, but he was like, oh my gosh, I can't put it down. It is so funny, though, that you can read it. And it's like, no, no, no. If I just yell loudly at the book, it won't happen. (laughs) Go, go. Don't do it. RFK, don't cut through the kitchen. No. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, I mean, that's the the mark of of great writing is that you, it is, seems to have that possibility. That it's just it, exactly that, you know that that anything can happen. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember yeah. the, the book group that you and I were in, which um, in addition to our running really helped cement our friendship, that we would alternate fiction one month, nonfiction the next. Right. Right. Yeah. Which makes me then think of Random Family. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. I was trying to remember no. the name of that, that book yeah. because by Nicole, I'm forgetting her last name. Nicole Adrian LeBlanc. Oh, and uh, that is still one of my top 10 favorite nonfiction oh. books. But, you know, yeah, that was, we all laughed because it was, it's nonfiction. Oh my gosh. And, don't, uh, don't say uh, it. Don't say it. <laughs> I have to. There was a woman in our group that said, Oh, I thought we were reading uh, nonfiction this month because that's how good it was. It re it reads like fiction. Yep, yep, yep. That that was a very tactful way to tell that story, Allison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought so. I knew you were like I could see you, you know, raising your arms. No. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Yes. 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 Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, Great well, book. Great yes. book. If you ever it, have a chance. It is. It was funny that we were both thinking that exact same book when harking yeah. back to our book. Oh gosh. Um, days. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So well. Yeah. Um, I had you on today because I wanted to have some chit chat because now for the rest of the episode, um, I'm, I am a guest actually on the rest of the podcast. It is, um, this is a uh, episode that I recorded for a show called the four top with host. Catherine. Oh. Yeah. With host Catherine Cole, who I've known for an eternity. She actually, um, interesting side note that maybe you could use on Jeopardy one day or something. Uh, <laughs> when I was the editorial director at Lucy.com, the predecessor to Lucy, the activewear company that I think is now out of business. Um, yeah. Uh, Catherine wrote um, articles, but we had content on the site. So Catherine wrote for me on there. So, and, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, so now, now, yeah. but she, she was the wine columnist for the Oregonian. Um, and so she has this show called the four top and I was one of the guests on there. And, um, the other guests are, um, Mia Hassel and her brother Miles, which is a little side note. Um, make sure you pay attention to the, the sibling, uh, interaction between Mia and Miles. It, it <laughs> caused me a couple of chuckles while we were talking. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, so anyway, we are, um, talking about a variety of topics, including carbohydrates and protein and protein snacks, and then uh, uh, bowls, build your own bowl type things. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, so yeah. yes, yeah, it's, it yeah, it's sounds very timely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. So after this short break, um, I will switch over to being a guest on the four top. And thank you, Allison. As always enjoyed it. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of The Four Top. It's a roundtable discussion of today's hot button topics in food and beverage. I'm your host, Catherine Cole. We will be dropping this episode as the holidays kick into high gear, so we thought we'd focus on healthy eating and physical activity today, just to be contrarian. For our first course, we will discuss why the Mediterranean diet could save your life, but its polar opposite could help you to win that next race. Next, should we really be eating protein bars if we're just going to spend the day sitting? And finally, we will dissect the bowl. Why are these messy piles of hippie food so popular right now? We are not in the studios of OPB today, but in the soothing environs of the Slab Town location of Root Whole Body, a spa, yoga studio, and cafe in Portland, which very much fits with our discussion today. 
Root takes a natural medicine approach towards health and well-being, offering a plant-forward food menu, yoga classes, chiropractic, acupuncture, and massage treatments, asana, hydrotherapy, uh, and natural wellness products. And I have to say, I love that they have complementary loose-leaf herbal teas. A few of us are sipping them right now. Um, even if you've only gone to a yoga class, you can come into Roots, sit in the sauna, and sip tea. So we're very lucky to be sitting here in a beautiful studio sipping lovely teas. And now, let me introduce our guests. Sarah Bowen Shea is the co-founder of the very successful online community and podcast, Another Mother Runner. She's also the co-author of three books with her co-founder, Dimity McDowell, um, on running motherhood and health. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Catherine. Thanks for being here. Delighted. I love your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Mia Hassel is a writer, cooking instructor, and author with her brother Miles of the groundbreaking book, Good Food, Great Medicine, which is now in its fourth edition. Congratulations, Mia. Thank you. And thanks for being here. And Miles Hassel, MD, is a physician at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center. He's also a clinical instructor, a professor at Pacific University, and founder of the Integrative Medicine Program at Providence Cancer Center in Portland. Welcome, Miles. Thank you for having me here. All right, folks, let's dig into our first course, Mediterranean Diet to Live, Refined Carbs to Win, in which I hope that I can pit Sarah and Miles against each other. <laughs> but first, Miles Hassel, your book, Good Food, Great Medicine, promotes a veggie-heavy, whole-grain, Mediterranean diet as a long-term lifesaver. And you warn against refined grains, and I was particularly interested to see that you deem bagels to be bad. So t tell us about this diet and how it's going to save our lives. Well, we're not picking on bagels uh, in particular. <laughs> we're picking on everything that's made with white flour, either processed grains or sweets. The reason is these are nutrient-depleted, low-quality foods that are, in the long run are associated with more of just about everything that's bad, including things like cancer, dementia, heart disease, stroke. Um, and, if, of course, if people aren't burning enough calories, obesity. Uh, diabetes is surprisingly common in people who are remarkably appropriate body weight. And so I, c I can find no case for ever um, um, preferring a refined carbohydrate food for any purpose. For any purpose. For any purpose. Uh-oh, Sarah. My understanding is that, you know, you're, you're a runner, you race a lot. My understanding is um, to prepare for a race, the best thing to do is load up on these refined carbohydrates. Is that correct? It is. A lot of people do say to eat white before a race in the day or two leading up to it. But, I mean, we are kind of moving away from that because we do realize that there are really no nutrients in the, unless the, except for the ones that are pumped into them by, you know, bread makers and things like that. But it is tough on so many runner and other type of athletes' stomachs to have roughage and, you know, vegetables and all that stuff the day or two before a race. I mean, I meet women uh, when I travel for another mother runner who don't eat salads for the week before a marathon because they're like, oh my gosh, I can't have any greens in my diet. So it is a whole lot easier on a lot of people's stomach to be eating white rice bagels, uh, baked potatoes, things like that, uh, pasta with, you know, just very plain marinara sauce, pizza before a race. Um, and so those are kind of asterisk days that you get to do that. And, and I gotta say, it's pretty tough. I mean, to eat a whole bunch of white food, there's, it's just not all that appealing to me. And so the days I remember being in Boston before I ran Boston, just being like, okay, I guess I'll have a bagel. Uh, like it's just, it is kind of bland and boring, but that is 
it, it helps fuel your muscles and also just is really easy on the GI tract. Yeah, you actually just reminded me of something I sort of suppressed until now, which is after the <laughs> Chicago Marathon, I ran that years and years ago, I ate something from a food cart that was like right at the end of the marathon. It was like super spicy. And then I was up all night throwing up afterward because uh-huh. my the doctor at the ER said, because your body is in shock after running a marathon and you just need to put really simple Bland. Bland. Yeah. I mean, mean, after you run, I mean, you don't feel like, uh, do a big effort like that. You don't feel like eating much. That's why a lot of people just drink chocolate milk or something like that because they kind of can't even gag anything down. But yeah, you know, it's a shock to your system in a lot of ways to run 26.2 miles or to ride a hundred mile bike ride or whatever it is you want to do. So you do have to just kind of go easy where you can. And for a lot of people, that's white foods. Hmm. Mia, is there middle ground between these two white foods? Well, and- well, my first thought was um, when you mentioned the salads and the vegetables and the roughage, I was thinking, well, who wants to, you don't have to eat that. You can have lovely, soft uh, cooked vegetables, including potatoes. Um, corn might be a little too much roughage, but plain old potatoes um, would be maybe have the same effect. Um, even brown rice. Um, and, and unless that has too much roughage, not being a runner, I don't, I don't know just how serious it is, but you don't need to have salads or raw vegetables. You can have everything cooked. Um, our only point would be try to make it real food mm-hmm. because we want people to feel good after the marathon right, as well. Exactly. Real food being? Anything that isn't processed or a, a food substitute, um, something that's created to taste like food but isn't, um, just something that your great-grandparents would recognize as food is what we, we have a pretty relaxed um, interpretation, a pretty relaxed description of what real food is. Wouldn't you say, Miles? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of factors. One is, is real food is something that comes with all the nutrients that was originally uh, born with. Um, secondly, I think we always should, should uh, promote good long-term health over short-term performance. Thirdly, there is a big body of literature of people who promote whole foods even prior to racing, even for carb loading. And, and you mentioned baked potatoes as an example of that. Baked potatoes are wonderful whole food for this purpose, brown rice, um, uh, whole corn, that kind of thing. So, Miles, when you say you promote long-term health over short-term performance, are you s- implying that one or two days before a race of eating white foods is going to uh, hinder, your, like going to cut a year or two off your life? Like we have no idea. Words, so, so you're entirely speculating. But, but I'm arguing that why would you ever include a low quality food when you have the option of a high quality food? Well, and I mean, I'm arguing we should be training people to be thinking long term. What's life going to be like at 70, at 80, in 10 years from now? But also, when I think about when I travel for races, and that I, I, I you know, if I'm at home, if I do, you know, the Portland Marathon then I have my kitchen at my disposal and I can be cooking those fruits and making the oatmeal or, you know, cooking those steel cut oats, something like that. But if I'm in a hotel room at the whim of the buffet or the takeout restaurants that are nearby, you sort of have to do the best you can. And I think that's the type of thing. That's when you think, okay, I'm going to opt for that baked potato and I'm going to, if my stomach can handle it, I'll eat this, you know, the skin on it or whatever, something like that. Yeah, and I would say Miles is, is um, even though he's very focused on the, um, the, this business of not even compromising, um, a healthy athlete who eats well most of the time, they can do anything they want. And, and it's just that he would find it hard to, to compromise because he spends his time 
talking to people who are very sick and mm-hmm. and who really can't afford a day or two mm-hmm. of this. So, but as far as someone like you who knows what they're doing and and is intelligent and eats well and are traveling and don't don't have your own kitchen, mm-hmm. I think you'd be the first one to say I'm not that neurotic. Oh, correct. Because we there's this term orthorexic where you over overdo all the principles. Mm. But what I was hearing from you, Sarah, is what I see translating into too many people saying, oh, their whole life becomes exceptions. Mm. And so I'm saying the more we make just a habit of, of great food and, and not, not pretending that white rice and white flour are as good as brown rice and baked potatoes, uh, then, then I think the healthier we'll be and the healthier we'll help other people be. Yeah, we did speak about clean eating and orthorexia. I can't remember which episode it was. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you can, you can go to the extreme at either end, right, Miles? Including with exercise. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of endurance exercise being healthy needs to be questioned as well, of course. Ah. Well, I love that we keep mentioning potatoes because um, I don't know if you saw, I sent the link to an academic report from this year in which a panel of experts reviewed the topic of carbo-loading before sports, and they said it, it is effective, but it seemed like they all recommended potatoes as the best option for carbo-loading. They, they were easy. they were partly um, supported by the potato industry. Were they? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This was not a, uh, and I'm not against potatoes. Don't get me wrong, but the, the, there was that a, Miles he hates potatoes. <laughs> no, no, potatoes are great food for people that burn the calories. Uh, but so is whole corn, so are whole grains, um, so are so, so many foods. Can I ask you that whole corn? I just feel it just passes through the system. I mean, I, let's <laughs> let's get true. real for a second. I mean, like you know, like when a do- I, uh, growing up, I had a our next door neighbor had a dog. You could always tell when Princess had been in in our yard. Let's just leave it at that. And they had chickens, so they would, so Princess would eat their. Uh, granted, it was hard corn, but I gotta say the same happens to me as well. You yeah, know, you can definitely yeah. see, you, you resee it again. The dog would eat the chicken scratch. Oh yes. No, we're not we're not talking about cook. We're not talking about uh, fresh corn. We're talking about scratch. Yeah. Oh my. Miles is cracking up right now. <laughs> so so dogs' metabolism. Dogs' no. metabolism it doesn't easily translate to human nutrition. Um, but certainly, if for any given food that your body doesn't tolerate, you know everybody's extraordinary. We all have our our, our uh, strong points and our weak points. Well, and, but I agree with you, Sarah. I mean, we've all changed a toddler's diaper. Sure. Where it's just like, wow. In looking like corn, out looking like corn. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, Miles actually spends a lot of time recommending most of his patients don't eat corn or corn mm. products simply because it is something that um, a lot of his patients have diabetes and or, or weight issues, and corn is something that they're probably better off staying away from. So we're not corn advocates. It's just that when we're coming up with a carbohydrate that might be mm-hmm. maybe more mm-hmm. um, acceptable. Yeah, but yeah so corn, rice, and potatoes are a problem for people who are heavy and sedentary. Mm-hmm. But for people who are active, it's, they're great foods. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of sedentary, maybe it's time to switch to our next topic, our second course. Uh, we're going to switch from carbs to proteins. Uh, do protein bars have magical powers, or are they maybe a little bit snake oil? You can't walk into a gas station convenience store these days without seeing shelves packed with protein bars, uh, which I don't think we actually need to be eating while we're driving or sitting at our desks. But Sarah Bonchet, you are actually someone who competes on a regular basis, so you probably are, should be eating protein bars. Um, I'm sure you've tasted a lot, and I'm curious what you look for in a protein bar. Yeah, so protein... I- I am, despite what maybe I've been made out to be, I definitely do love whole foods and I cook a lot. And so that I 
I know there are a lot of people who are very bar centric. I'm not one of those people, but again, when you're oftentimes traveling for a race or maybe you've gone somewhere to, you know, I live on the east side of Portland and, and go over to the trails on the west side, you know, sometimes you just need something to get you back home. And so the, you know, that protein bars can kind of be in a, can serve beautifully in a pinch to help you kind of get from your, the protein you had at breakfast through to the protein you had at lunch. Cause you kind of, you know, what, what we at another mother runner and our train like a mother club is that, you know, you kind of want this, this heartbeat of protein throughout the day to keep you going. And particularly after a workout, because you know, your muscles are open and they're receptive to being restored. So, and that protein can fill that gap. Yeah. And obviously I was an English major, if we want to establish that right from the fact. <laughs> no science for me. Thank you. <laughs> well, so Sarah, do you look at the ingredients list when you're buying one? Is, it, is there anything in particular you look for or try to avoid? Um, I definitely don't want one that has, back to the whole foods thing, you, you want one that gets its protein from very natural sources. So whether oh. that's pea protein or egg whites, or I just tried ones that were made from cricket protein flour. Oh. And I, you know, would not survive on Survivor eating bugs, but I got to say they were really quite good. And, you know, a vast majority of the rest of the world eats insects. So um, my kids wouldn't do them because they say, but mom, we're vegetarian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But they weren't extra crunchy and they were quite good. So, um, you know, ones that have very few ingredients, short ingredient list and a flavor profile, because some of them can get so chalky and Mm -hmm. just... You know, I'm not I'm not a muscle head in the gym looking to really get a ton of protein. Yeah, I remember those original power bars that you could mm. barely bite into. They were so kind of yeah, chalky and they were fibrous. sort of rubbery and yeah, and um, like solid peanut butter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Miles, I'm curious as a physician, what is your stance on protein bars? Well, I think there's several uh, things. First of all, I think protein bars are food for rich white people. Um, and, and so I, I sort of think, huh, what's, what's the better alternative? And so for me, things like uh, raw nuts and dried fruit, uh, dates, for example, you can keep them in the car. They, they, they sit there for, for months, um, without being too, uh, too dried out, uh, are, are good kinds of foods to keep around cold meat. Um, cheese are all foods you can keep handy all the time, less expensive, less processed. And I think the whole issue of processing is overlooked. So um, Sarah made the example of of, uh, pea protein, for example. I don't think pea protein qualifies as a food. If you look at how it's actually made, the the uh, it's it's a rec- almost a reconstituted chemical construct, um, and and so I would I would argue it doesn't really qualify as a food in the way I would see it. And there's an extensive literature on processed foods that associate them with worse health outcomes. Hmm. And so, for example, in the Nutrisante study, which was uh, followed about 100,000 people for about eight years, of people who, for every 10% increase in processed foods these people ate, which included um, processed proteins like that, um, there's about a 12% increase in cancer, driven primarily by breast cancer. Wow. So, um, so the whole the whole issue of food processing, I think, is not being appreciated. Hmm. There's extensive literature. It's it's an extensively negative literature, and I think we should be encouraging people to learn how to to, uh, um, to find whole food substitutes that are unprocessed instead, because they're easy to do. For example, if I'm on a road trip, 
then one of the things we'll do, we'll cut up cheese, we'll cut up uh, celery sticks, we'll cut up carrot sticks, um, uh, cucumbers, hummus. Um, I might throw a couple of tri-tip steaks on the grill and, and, uh, and slice them up and stick them in a Ziploc bag, that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay, so if I'm at the gas station, I'm driving, it's a long, long journey, and I'm starving, should I, is it okay to buy the um, hickory-spoked almonds? Is that better than a <laughs> protein bar? It seems like they have so much sugar and salt and all that kind of stuff. Under those conditions, you just close your eyes and you buy something that tastes good and you call it, <laughs> and you call it a special occasion. Miles, you surprised me with that answer. Yeah. <laughs> Keep us guessing there, Miles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Mia, I bet you know how to make a protein bar that tastes better I than anything you could buy. I just might. And to me, it's easy for me to say, I grew up with a mother who, who would make probably everyone's mother made little balls of peanut butter, honey, oats. Um, um, in her case, she would throw in brewer's yeast, which is a, a source of protein that isn't highly refined, and it's mm. uh, truly a, a whole food. Uh, it didn't taste good. You plugged your nose if she put it in a, in a <laughs> drink. But, um, but yeah, it is simple to make your own, because I was listening to Miles' description of all the bits and pieces, and that's not practical when you've... When you're, um, we're talking. Well, I, w I was actually thinking of. I, I'm maybe still hooked on the athletic part of it. You know, the training or and on your way to a race, and you're just maybe not going to have. There's enough just to get there on time. Yeah. But I'm thinking that just doing ahead, it's something like a um, your own version of a, a protein bar that doesn't have all the junk in it and is truly fuel, um, and whatever a runner would have to put in it to make it acceptable to their body is 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 fine with me as long as it's real yeah yeah i, I did okay, think sarah was I, did, so I did me i did think about that when i was listening to miles talk thinking like oh that's a lot of prep work before that road trip you know and i'm trying to get out the door i'm trying to make sure that you know maybe the home front is taken care of while i'm going out leaving the family behind have you left them enough crickets to eat yeah and things like that <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so um but i mean i have done many, many relay races and been delighted to have teammates who do pack exactly like you do, Miles. They put the hummus and the, everything you listed off, you know, including snap peas and, you know, all that stuff. And, and it is delightful, but it is just a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And that I eat like that at home and that if it happens that, I mean, I have done so many, we do live podcast parties and there have been so many nights that Dimity and I have pulled into that convenience store that you're talking about mm -hmm. and been like, what can we find here that we can eat? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, trying to find the hard boiled eggs in the, in the, you know, cold section, maybe some chocolate milk and just trying to figure out how we can stay as much away from things that are in packages. Well, because they're, they've got on display what they can sell. And they're, people aren't going to ask for raw almonds. They're going to ask for hickory smoked or, or honey roasted. Um, mm -hmm. Or the cashews that have, that are... Ranch flavor. That are just, yes. <laughs> or worse, uh, uh, sweetened with, <laughs> they say honey sweetened, but actually look in the look on the ingredients and they say sugar first and maybe another kind of sugar and then there's honey powder <laughs> <laughs> i'd go for the kit kat wait but so miles I, okay i'm not sponsored by kind bar but i will say i usually in those situations i usually go for the kind bar because i can see the almonds they're actually visible is that a good rule of thumb it might be um well certainly better uh, than kit oh yeah yeah it'd be better than my choice of a kit kat by far i completely agree <laughs> 
It's not as good as my choice of a handful of dates and, and a handful of raw almonds. Oh, okay. But um, the, the problem I have with all the bars, including Kind Bars, Lara Bars, Cliff Bars, and so on, is that what degree of processing is involved in having something that is shelf-stable for months or years? Mm. And that's a, an unknown. But if we look at the pro- food, and I hate to repeat myself, but if we look at the food processing literature, it's not an attractive site. Even if you all you, the only processing that occurs is at a restaurant, it's the temperatures and pressures involved in commercial processing that's the difference. And so that's why as a routine, I wouldn't do it. As a late night snack at, 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 a, at, a, uh, at a gas station, I think it's a wonderful idea because that's, that's the kind of uh, times that I get whatever I want. And kind bars are delicious. <laughs> yep. And if they would like to sponsor this show, they're more than welcome to. But I'm kind of reminded about when you talk about pea protein and we're talking about um, um, the processing, this nutritional reductionism is such a trap. And you hear, and, and people are constantly hearing on the radio, oh, it's so simple, you just take a, um, a, a, a atom of this and a and a atom of that and you put it together and you've got this miracle yeah and people believe that they know what they're talking about and it's not that simple the processing part skews everything and um and we don't know why any particular food works so well for our bodies we can only guess and so when a when a manufacturer says oh we know what it is it's the resveratrol or it's the um, this antioxidant in the acai berry or whatever they don't have any idea but they're so positive and there's a lot of money tied up in it so they so they create a whole market sorry i'm going on about this and I, but. and i think the the observation that of course that if this is 5% of your food supply it's probably not a big deal if it's 20 to 50%, which is typical in our society, it probably is a good deal. So we did do an episode where we talked about Soylent. Um, I'm assuming you're not a fan of that. Have you heard of that, Miles? I apologize. I don't know what it is. It's, I need to get out more. Uh, the uh, tech industry came up with it. It's um, Well, they got their, their name from the film Soylent Green. Um, but it is basically a shake that is supposed to meet all your nutritional needs so you don't have to leave your computer. So you can just have three of those a day and just keep typing. <laughs> well, to start with, that's a bit of a fraud because we can't, nobody, including NASA, knows how to feed people synthetically. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's, we ha- there's, there's big chunks of nutrition that we actually don't know anything about, even, even nowadays. And so that's the first problem. Second problem is that um, sitting in front of a computer is really bad for you. <laughs> and so uh, anything that keeps you from getting up from your computer is, is an error in, in and of itself. Well, that's why we all got to run. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not too far miles, but we get, we have to run. Yes. Or play ping pong. Oh, yes. Uh, so, so there. If you look at the dementia literature, the kinds of exercise that appears to have, have be the strongest um, is uh, is what they call exergaming. So things like tennis, pickleball, ping pong. Uh, these these pursuits that involve socializing, and strategy, and activity at the same time. And so that's the, way, that's the kind of approach we take. And if anybody wants to come to the Providence Neurologic Institute's uh, um, um, conference on this subject uh, later this month, then uh, health professionals are invited to attend. You will be speaking, I presume. Well, as a matter of fact, I am the keynote speaker. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, I think this episode might be running, it's running December 3rd, so we might miss it. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Darn, but if you want to join a pickleball league, I bet Miles knows where I can find one. <laughs> Pickleball, not a, not a sport one hears often. 
Well, maybe we should transition to our third topic. Mia, you mentioned Asahi bowls. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Neither is Mia. <laughs> but we've noticed at the foretop that there are bowls everywhere. You can suddenly, there's even you know whole restaurants devoted to bowls. Buddha bowls, whole bowls, mighty bowls, bliss bowls, they have all different names. Um, and we were just curious, what is going on with this trend? Why is everyone suddenly making and eating bowls? Um, so Mia Hassel, you're, you're a pro. What is your reaction to the bowl craze? Um, complete disinterest. Now, it's only because um, my niche happens to be working with people who don't know how to cook, who are sick, who are desperate to start somewhere, and they're not going to start at um, learning a, a trend. That, that's not where we are. Um, I say any good food in a bowl is a great idea, mm. um, especially if it's whole food. And, and I think eating food in a bowl makes a lot of sense. You, know, you, you don't have to use a bread for a pusher. <laughs> the sides of the bowl work just fine. So it's a great idea. And, and, but it's just the, uh, the, the, the sense of uh, trendiness that bothers me. I don't eat out. Um, so I don't, I've never actually, I will admit, I've never had a bowl, and I should have one here sometime. Well, but that's, that's a great uh, entree into me uh, introducing our special guest. We have Chef Lissa Kane. She's the executive chef for uh, both Root Hole Body locations as well as uh, Blossoming Lotus here in Portland. And I would like for her to come take over my mic for this bowl segment because I've had some very delicious bowls at both of your locations. So, Lissa, come on in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scoot out. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate that. So bowls. I had never heard of one until I moved here 11 years ago. My biggest take on bowls is that they're supplanting the um, sandwich. I think sandwiches are gone and bowls are in. And I think it's a great way to get a lot of healthy foods, whole foods like you're talking about, in in one shot. And I don't think they need to be complicated to make. Um, I'm a big proponent of cook with what you have. What's in your pantry? What's on sale at the market? What's in the farmer's market? Um, at the restaurants, we actually make our bowls according to what the, is on the farmer's availability list. We literally look at their list and order it and then, and then cook and make our specials from there. Um, I agree totally with eating good whole grains that have, are more, much more nutrient-dense than our white bread of, that we all grew up on, right? And I think in a bowl, you can put two or three veggie servings, some good grains or lentils or legumes, or maybe it's a sweet potato or a roasted beet, some, something that'll satiate you because those grains are important in terms of feeling full and happy. Bowls, I believe, need a good fat, whether it's an avocado or a nice creamy dressing. Maybe the dressing's made from olive oil, perhaps cashews, that type of thing. Some protein belongs in there, and you can get those from any of those things. I like a bowl with a little bit of pickle in it, maybe something fermented that can help with your digestion. And I think they're visually pleasing. You can put everything in the same plate, one thing to clean up at the end of the night. And like you said, Mia, it's easier to get it into your mouth. You can hold the bowl and get it in there quickly. Um, they've been a real big hit for us. They've been, they've been great. And I eat that way at home now. We're literally, we make food, and then we, they, it all ends up in the same spot anyway, so it, that's just where we go. And I think the eater can decide 
their perfect bite. They can investigate. Do I want these two things together? Do I want to mix it all? Do I want to keep it separate? Do you have? I was going to say, I, I found that to be the case with having three vegetarian teenagers in my house is that they can create their own. So you lay it out. So when you are eating at home, you can put out, you know, seven to 10 choices and then they can create their own. You know, if I see they haven't gotten enough protein or they haven't taken too many vegetables, I can steer them in that direction. But it is, you know, it's a make your own adventure type meal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they can be different every time. So, so do you um, have a situation where people just pick their own in the or is it a menu? Okay, so ideally we come up with these ideas and then people always customize. This is Portland. <laughs> That's what they do. People have favorites, they have allergies, they have preferences, they need two of these, they have something they're trying to adjust medically. Um, we were talking earlier about the immunity broth bowl that you had earlier and it's really good. It came up up because we were trying to use what mother nature was giving us right now, which is squash, which is high in A, high in vitamin C. It's great antioxidant. We're, we put a beautiful mushroom miso broth that has three mushrooms in it and three kinds of seaweed, all wonderful for you. And it makes you feel good. You eat this bowl at root and you feel better. It's actually medicine. That's what we're going for. And that's, that's what we're trying to put together. It makes me think of, um, just primitive diets. Um, People have always eaten this way Absolutely. because it was a practical way to eat. I think of pho. Um, that's the first thing I thought of when, when the bowl thing came along because that's exactly what it was. You know, meat, vegetables, soup. Yeah, absolutely, and it's very nourishing, makes you feel satisfied, you know, and it feel, you can smell, especially if it's a broth and it's a cold day. You feel nourished as you eat, and that's what it is. Like meat. <laughs> Hmm. With, with breadcrumbs or no breadcrumbs? <laughs> we don't use breadcrumbs in our meatloaf. We use rolled oats. Fair enough. Yeah, and another thing I love so much about you, you saying about how the, the feeling of satiety you get from a bowl, but I also love the different textures in it. I mean, that to me, you know, taste is number one, but texture for me is pretty close to it. Absolutely. You can have something nourishing and hearty. Maybe it's squash, maybe it's sweet potato or a farro or some, you know, hearty green. And then you can layer some fresh ingredients, something crisp, maybe some steamed kale, which will give you a lot of nutrients. Um, you can put something bright, something mm -hmm. acidic, so you can contrast the flavors. Um, and I just think it's, I don't think it's hard to cook. I think it's quite easy to put in there. I think you stock your pantry well. You buy what's yeah. local, you buy what's in season, you trust Mother Nature. And cook more than you're going to need. Absolutely. Although I found that, so I did that last night, I served bowls to the family, and they were kind of Mediterranean-themed, and I thought, oh, I have just, I've practically doubled the recipe that I had sort of started with. I thought, I'm just going to have lunches for days with this. Oh my gosh, the, the scavengers in my house, oh. like everything was picked clean. That's teenagers, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I, every week I cook a bowl of quinoa at home, mm -hmm. and I have it for dinner. I have it for breakfast. I heat it up with yogurt or maybe some nuts and some fruit. It can, it can go either way. So I think you do have to plan out a little bit, I mean, especially at home, because we're all busy. Mm -hmm. no, nobody has time. Nobody mm -hmm. has time for that. It is easier in the restaurants because we can do everything on a mass scale and... Uh, and then, and then create from there. Right, right, yeah. And then have enough containers to keep it stored in your refrigerator. There's always that. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Stack them up. 
The right containers. That the right container is never there when you want oh, it. Oh, or and its lid is never there. Yes, it's definitely, its lid is never there. It's been <laughs> left at school. I finally had to threaten my son to say I will not make him any more lunches until he brings some containers home. He said to me this morning, "But mom, I just brought them home on Friday." And I'm like, "Uh huh, yeah, and it's Thursday, and we're running a little low." So, <laughs> you uh, have acyables, no doubt, that I've heard about. Actually, we, for our, all our bowls, we use all our different smoothies. So a- any of our fruit-based smoothies, we can do that for like a breakfast type of thing with our house-made granola made from oats and um, raw honey and pumpkin seeds. But we also um, do savory bowls, so the no Well, Catherine had mentioned that the acai bowls, and I, I looked into it because I had not heard of that. And you're right there. I couldn't believe it. It was just a smoothie in a bowl with some fruit on top and this is some um, that's what we do that's what we do here at root cafe we actually offer all our smoothies in a bowl mm. and then you can build it from there i just ate lunch but i'm getting hungry all over again uh, we have yeah. we have immunity bowls <laughs> well speaking of acai bowls which i really think are an excuse for adults to have dessert for lunch maybe it's time to move on to our dessert course where we each go around the table and share something food or beverage related we've been enjoying this week Um, I'll go first. Just listening to that last segment made me think about my dinner I made last night for my kids. And I made a bowl as well, (laughs) Sarah. And um, the two fun things that we enjoyed. One, I like to just put out all the ingredients. Maybe you do this too, Sarah. And they build the bowl themselves. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And somehow that gets them to eat more vegetables. They Mm -hmm. don't even realize they're bad. So I'll cook like three different vegetables and they'll just toss them all on there. I love that. Um, the other thing is I read that the term Buddha bowl actually comes from true history. They say that Buddha himself was actually thin, not fat. And he would wander around with his bowl and accept donations from people. And he would definitely be getting some rice and then probably some vegetables. He would just stop at different villages or different houses and people would add things to his bowl. So I thought that was kind of a neat story. So Sarah, did you bring some dessert? I did bring some dessert. It's something that I have been listening to while I've been cooking, which is the audio version of Michelle Obama's new memoir, Becoming. And she reads it herself. So it is a double dose in a way of Michelle Obama. So... Um, I highly recommend it. And Michelle Obama used to do a kids' cooking contest. Sure, yeah. And uh, Laura Russell, who's been a guest on this show a few times, her daughter won in Oregon one year, and she got to go because her her recipe was chosen and have lunch with Michelle Obama. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe they got some things from the garden outside the White House, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Oh, I can't wait to read that book. Thank you. So, Mia, it looks like you actually brought a real dessert. (laughs) Well, I can't help it. Yeah, this is a real, it it technically isn't dessert. It's it's more, um, well, protein bar, like we've been discussing, because it made me think of of what I do. And uh, so I brought it, so um, after we finish talking, then everyone can taste it and tell me what they think of it compared to um, something like a kind bar. Essentially, it's the same thing. But it's um, much finer because when you haven't got the um, when you don't bind it with syrup, then you can't. Then it's it's a little harder to make it um, hold together. But so you need to um, in this case dried fruit creates the the, the sticky part, um, bit of honey and homemade peanut butter. But um, 
but you've got the pumpkin seeds, the almonds, the dried apricots, the um, rolled oats, um, the... Uh, 85% Dagoba chocolate. Oh, yes. Mm. 80, 84%, excuse me, 84% Dagoba chocolate, because chocolate's a very important ingredient uh, health-wise. So anyway, oh. that's my dessert. And it's gluten-free, too, it sounds like. In this case, it is, yes. Wow, yeah. looks good. Thank you and for And lots of good us. fat. Good fat. And, and is the recipe in Good Food, Great Medicine? No, a similar one is. Uh, the chocolate almond bites in the, in the book um, is just plain chocolate, um, dried fruit. In the case of the book, it's raisins, apricots, or prunes. And, um, and um, 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 chocolate, nuts, uh, almond, whole almonds with the skin on, everything. And um, orange zest and a bit of salt. But mm. essentially, it's those three ingredients with the, the zest and the salt thrown in. And that's, that's uh, more like a truffle. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't, it's pretty rich for, it's, it's a little richer than this. But mm-hmm. it Maybe is. Maybe not it two in the afternoon idea. food. Maybe more like six or seven yeah. p.m. Yeah. Even though people would consider it in a bar form, they'd consider it a protein bar. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. Thank you. Miles, did you bring a dessert for us? Yeah, I'd like a thought. Um, one of the things that impressed me is, especially when I look at my 70 and 80 and 90 year olds uh, who are in good shape, who are living vital lives, is to remind people just how much control they have over their long-term health. If they watch their weight appropriately, eat great food, which they make at home, and stay active every day, they almost don't need doctors in most cases. And the idea of, of having people um, really seize the idea that they can be medically independent, I think, is very important. That is great advice. And I will try to follow it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, all of you panelists. Uh, thank you to Lissa Kane, the executive chef at Blossoming Lotus Restaurant, as well as Root Whole Body here in Portland. Thank you, Sarah Bowen Shea, whose most recent book is Tales from Another Mother Runner, Triumphs, Trials, Tips, and Tricks from the Road. Although I have to say my favorite book title, Sarah, of yours is Run Like a Mother, How to Get Moving and Not Lose Your Family Job or Sanity. Uh, Dr. Miles Hassel and Mia Hassel, co-authors of Good Food, Great Medicine, a Mediterranean Diet and Lifestyle Guide, is now in its fourth edition, everyone. So thank you, everyone, for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Many happy miles. You know it's the way we sign off from this podcast, but you know what else? It is also the name of the plan that we just opened on the 28th of November, And it is an antidote to so many of those questions, especially motivation and being ready to jump on a race plan. And so Many Happy Miles, it's a special year-long program, and it's motivation, workouts, challenges, webinars with guest speakers on a variety of topics, and discounts to keep you moving all throughout the year. It was developed by my genius cohort, Dimity, and the workouts and challenges abound with creativity and spark while ensuring you become a stronger, more well-rounded runner. So registration's open now through the end of the year, and then the program itself kicks off January 1st. So anothermotherrunner.com slash manyhappymiles. Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. And whatever race you're planning, many happy miles. Many happy miles.